Welcome to another episode of the Nerds Who Live Podcast, sports fans. As always, I'm your host, Nicholas Anderson. And today, my friends, today we have one of the guests that I've been really looking forward to bring on the show. He is one of my favorite powerlifters to watch, one of my favorite powerlifters to follow, uh, because he is both strong, intelligent, and entertaining. He is the one, the only Sean Noriega, a.k.a. at Hamstring Poppy on the Instas. Yes, sports fans, we have powerlifting Ironman himself onto the show, and I really couldn't be more excited. It's, I'd like to say that uh, it was like a great correspondence uh, and like building rapport to get him on the show. It wasn't. I responded to one of his stories about Leonardo DiCaprio being kind of the god of a man that he is he liked it i took that opportunity to have his attention to ask him if he'd like to come on my show because i have a random ass podcast and he was like tell me when that was it and that makes me really happy so i'm excited to speak with him get to know each other pick his brain because the man has a brain uh he graduated college uh definitely something i didn't do so you know, uh, I got to learn me some school, and I'm really looking forward to it. I've got a bunch of questions lined up from you folks that we collected over the Instas for the first ever Viking Performance Chalk Lightning Inquisition round. So, rapid fire questions, getting Sean's or our guests' instant responses, and then having them elaborate so we get to know them. So, we can get the questions out of the way, get their response, and then we can go back through and break it down. Maybe go into some detail, and that way we can riff, but still have an outline. We can really cover the subjects. So I'm really excited about that. And as always, thank you to our main sponsor, Viking Performance Chalk. They are good friends of mine. We finally set up a discount code for the show. So really cool. So the discount code for Viking Performance Chalk is NERDS10. Capital N, capital E, capital R, capital D, capital Z because I like to spell it that way, and then 10. So NERDS10 is great discount code. Save you some monies on not only just chalk, but their awesome Viking apparel that they have. So they are a great chalk company. Uh, it's the best dusty stuff for lifting heavy shit, but they have great apparel as well. All athletic, owned by two gym owners who are my friends, Dan and Kristen, so shout out to them for helping us out. Also to our other sponsors, Calvert Illustration, The Johnny Horror Show, we love you guys. So, really excited about this episode, I really want to get into it. Thank you guys for making Season 2 awesome, and we're just going to keep going. We just got started. So, without further ado, let's get Sean Noriega, Hamstring Poppy, on the line. Alright, let's go. Hey, what's up, man? How are you? Good, how are you? Very good. Oh, dude, the Stark Industry shirt. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Oh, thank you very much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. It's really good no, to no have problem, you. No problem, man. Thank you for having me. 
Oh, it's it's definitely been a pleasure. I I already did like kind of a little intro and um and it, one of the people I've been wanting to have on the show since I started, which was only a couple months ago, I started this show um was you because you're a nerd like me <laughs> it was a uh, yeah you you and uh, rob hall who are such you know huge nerds uh you know were the people i want to talk to and um so i'm glad that you know it, it kind of coincided and um yeah so i really appreciate it and i'm i'm excited to pick your brain uh and uh kind of get into stuff so um yeah maybe to g- give you a short little backstory and then kind of uh, why I want to have you on the show. I, I made this show with something I wish I had when I started lifting, um, kind of a resource for beginners and intermediates or, you know, anybody, um, but kind of a place to pick lifters brains, um, high level lifters and coaches, um, as well as I really wanted to kind of connect those people, um, you know, perhaps hopefully, you know, if someone listens, who's never lifted, and doesn't feel comfortable in the gym, but if they can relate to you and realize that, you know, they're not, they're, you're just as nerdy as they are, they may want to pick up the sport or any other sport, like whatever it is. But I feel like there, you know, there's still a discrepancy between, you know, people, uh, of, you know, kind of the subcultures and also, uh, just fitness and health in general. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the goal. Yeah, I do think it's actually pretty it's pretty interesting. Like I think that in like the metropolitan areas around the country, like powerlifting is becoming like the thing for nerds to do. It oh, very much to, is. Yeah, like in like I lived in DC, I lived in, in Cambridge in Massachusetts, I've lived in New York and like in New York City, Brooklyn, DC, Boston, like it's like the nerdy thing. Like nerds just like gravitate toward powerlifting because it's very quantifiable. It is. It's quantifiable. It's also, I mean, we all want to get superhuman. We all want to, <laughs> you know, that's, no, sure. that's part of being, and powerlifting gives you like, literally a way to, like you said, a quantifiable way to get better. And of course, everyone maybe, I know you used to play baseball, you know, you yeah. want to, you want to play baseball like the best, but baseball, it's a, it's a skill, you know, uh, it's a strength yeah. skill and it's very hard to do quantifiable, but you know, 400 pounds, 500 pounds is always 400, 500 pounds. And, you know, yeah. that's a, a really cool thing uh, that people have. And it's really empowering. And I think any, I think weightlifting and strongman is the same. Any strength sports can give people that outlet. Yeah, I think, I think it's just, yeah, it's, it's usually intelligent people are very goal oriented and like, and I'm not saying it's like, necessarily a great thing or a bad thing to have like very specific goals but the thing in strength sports is like it gives you very tangible landmarks that you can check off along the way and i think that's definitely 100% yeah. cuz we all want that you know when you start out it's you know you want a two plate bench three plate deadlift and a three plate squat like that's usually like the common marker for yeah. when you start it's like those you want those goals and of course you just feel better about yourself and i think if you're a nerd, it's you have a bit of social awkwardness and body dysmorphia and self-image issues and all that stuff. <laughs> so uh, it usually comes with it. Um, so I want to pick your brain. I, I know like on, you've been on Angelo's show, which was awesome, by the way. is one of my favorite episodes of his. And, yeah, uh, you talked about, obviously, you were in baseball in high school and how you started lifting. Um, I know if you could maybe do a short 
a bridge version of that introduction of yourself, how you got into the sport of powerlifting, um, and what kind of inspires you as a athlete. Yeah, for sure, man. So just to give a quick background, um, I played baseball for 15 years and, you know, that was like my life. Like I, I really loved playing baseball. I wanted to play it at the highest level that I could. Um, throughout high school, I had a series of injuries that kind of took me out of some important seasons. Like, um, for anybody playing a sport in high school, usually your junior year in any sport is the big year for getting recruited. And I missed more than half of it. Um, I had a surgery on my hand, you know, long story short, I knew that I was not going to be playing past the college level of baseball. And I had always been naturally just very gifted athletically in strength and speed when we trained for baseball with our coaches. Um, and my senior year of high school, one of my friends who had competed in powerlifting was like, hey, man, like, you know, your numbers are good. Just like do a competition. And I just went in, didn't really have any structured programming or expectations, but it went well enough and I enjoyed it enough to continue with it. I did two more meets while I was playing baseball, like in season, where I would just, you know, not really bench going into the meets and kind of hope for the best because, you know, benching and throwing don't really work too well together. <laughs> no, um, no, they don't. And then I, yeah, no, not at all. And then I got to college and, um, you know, in the fall, we had our fall season of baseball, but it was very brief. So I started to take powerlifting more seriously during that off-season period, a coach, I'm sure a lot of you guys know who Joey Flex is, uh, Joey Franzo, who's become one of my best friends up to this point. Um, and I was like, hey, man, I want to do a powerlifting meet right before baseball season starts. And it just went so well that I was like, you know what? I know that I'm not going to play baseball past college. And to me, playing for fun is not really what I'm about. Like, I want to be competitive. I want to play at the highest level. And that ship has sailed. So I'm going to give powerlifting a shot. And here we are. And here, and here we are. And Five I, years later. I, I would say you've done well for yourself. Um, and, you know, you are – Angelo said it. He said number one in our hearts, and it's really true. You're one of the – I think one of the best powerlifters to watch um, because uh, obviously you are – you know, you have your, very much your technician, but you have your own style with all of them. You're very extremes and you know, finding what has worked for you when it comes yeah. to your squat and your bench and your pulls. Um, so that's cool because it's really cool to see someone who can stay within the confines of good technique, but yet adapt it to their to their body and what they yeah. need. Um, so you're great to watch, and but you know you're intelligent as fuck. You just graduated college, college, correct? You got your BA, or was it your grad? You graduate degree? Uh, so I got my. Uh, I guess it would be BS last year uh, from MIT in mechanical engineering. Of course, you went to MIT. Fuck you. <laughs> like, all right. Where's the Stark shirt? It goes to MIT. Okay. it even weirder that's a really it's all creepy now it's all really creepy and i'm a, i'm about it um to be super nerdy my my favorite my uh, anime character also also shares a birthday with me so, so 
I know. I was. I was. Uh, it's Baki. I, I grew up with Baki, and and okay. uh, you know that's uh, it's on Netflix now. So other people are like getting onto it, and I was like, I've been on this for years. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we have in the manga, we have the same birthday. And I thought that was bitching. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but dude, that's just really eerie. But it's cool. You, but MIT is such a prestigious school. Like that's not. That's not exactly like it's not easy to get into. So what, so mechanical engineering, uh, I mean, what did that entail? I mean, I'm, I'm, I didn't go to college. So tell me. <laughs> okay. So, um, I mean, mechanical engineering at MIT, it's an interesting major because MIT's course, um, just the courses they offer, they don't call them majors at MIT. They call them courses. And not only do they call them courses, but they all have a number. So like, if you're talking to other MIT students, you don't say like, Oh, I'm in this Mechie class. Oh, I majored in Mechie. Yeah, Mechie at MIT is course two. So, like, course two at MIT is Mechie. Course 10 is chemical engineering. Course seven is biology. Course seven, eight, of course, eight is physics, whatever. list goes on. So, they all are courses. They all have specific numbers, and everyone just refers to their majors and classes by numbers. Um, and the way that it was structured is is interesting because the engineering majors were very stringent, but uh, mechanical concentration aspect of it. So you, everybody needed to take the core requirements for Mechie, which were you know um, you know structural engineering. So it was like elements and structures. Um, there was materials, a material science class or engineering class. You needed to take, you needed to take thermo, you needed to take fluids, and you needed to take um, a like your capstone class, which was like um, there were two options. There was either a product design class, which was more geared toward you know commercial product design. At the end of the year, you presented with a team. It was, the whole major got broken up into like ten teams, and you would have. The, this the beginning of the semester like this is the theme this is where your product needs to be centered around this theme and you'd work in like a team of 20 people to engineer this final product that pre gets presented in front of uh, this massive auditorium at MIT but gets streamed online and I think it's something like a hundred thousand people watch every year because all these big companies are are really interested in it and then the other one is is a design class so it's kind of obviously a similar concept but just geared toward um you know medical devices so those are the capstone classes you need to take and then to fill in those gaps you have the option to concentrate pretty much in any you can form your own concentration essentially where you can take um, engineering classes geared toward medical devices uh, class, uh, classes geared toward product design, classes geared toward nanotechnology, classes geared, like, it, the list went on. So, pretty much, people took the core classes, and then, like, whatever they were interested in, just kind of filled the gaps with what classes were interesting to them. Dude, I can, I can only imagine what some of the discussions are, and some of the, like, that's, not, that's just such a rad lineup, like, nanotech as an elective, like, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's so cool. Um, and then, so you got yours in Mechie. What was kind of like your focus or when you got into that, what about that drew so, you in? So my concentration, so I'm, I'm a bit of an interesting case. I definitely am not the, uh, the archetype of, of Mechie at MIT. I mean, most kids who are Mechie, like really either, they really like to build, um, like they're really, really geeky, just like getting their hands dirty, um, or they're kids who want to go into, you know, in 
industry design of some sort. Um, but I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do and just kind of, here, I have, I have darts. I have darts here. I just threw the dart at the door and I said, you know, I'll go with Mech E because it's very uh, applicable and I knew that it had that flexible major option. So my sophomore year, I killed myself with the core classes. Um, my schedules were just packed spring and fall semester. And then I realized halfway through, I was like, Mm, I don't really want to work in industry. I'm going to go pre-med. So my concentration is going to be in medical device design. And I'll finish out Mechie, take medical device design classes, and then also take pre-med classes. So that was the next two years of my MIT career just kind of geared toward tying up all those loose ends. Yeah. And, you know, and so now that you've, you've graduated, what is, I mean, what, what plans do you have to do, if anything, with it? Because obviously you can do whatever you want. But do you have any, like, ideas that you want to apply that to? I mean, obviously you're doing well. I <laughs> think <laughs> my answer to the question is just so ridiculous. Um, so, you know, I realized that I didn't want to work in engineering after grad or before graduating, halfway through, um, and went pre-med. Um, and the past year I've been working or had been working at the NIH, uh, the National Institute of Health, doing research in gene therapy. And background in our life, I've wanted to be an actor, but have been steered down the professional slash STEM path and kind of every year would give myself like, like I worked in completely different places after, every summer after, uh, after, you know, the year of school. I worked in finance, I worked in mechanical engineering, I worked on a lab, um, you know, I tried to do it all essentially to see if there was something, quote unquote, professional that I liked, and I tried for a while, like, I, I um, hey, hey, sorry, man, oh, no worries, dude, how, how far along in my rambling did we get before we got disconnected? Oh, so you got, we got to the, that, uh, going through your pre-med and the Mechie, and then you were, you know, working all those odd jobs in finance and whatnot and, you know, getting steered down that path. But, of course, you wanted to get into acting. So that's that's where that's where it got it got staticky. OK, yeah, because I saw you freeze up and I kept talking. I was like, oh, I think he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I worked I worked at uh, the National Institute of Health for the past year doing uh, gene therapy research. Um, and it was interesting, but it's, it's you know. I realized that just really sitting down and thinking about it, because I had more more free time as an employee than I did as a student. Um, I just had a lot of time to reflect and realized, like, I, you know, every single day just pursuing acting is what I thought about. And it's something that, like, I just want to relentlessly, you know, put my mind to. And, and that's the plan going forward. And um, I'm lucky enough to have such an awesome team of lecturers that, that give me, you know, financial support to be able to do this. So... Dude, hell yeah, first of all, good for you, because I think too many people, you know, ignore that voice in their head. It's like, if something is nagging at you that much, you know, there's probably a reason be behind it. And then secondly, that means you get to move to L.A., here to Cali. Eventually. Oh, okay. So my, yeah, no, 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 I, 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 I have friends who have just moved out, and they, I'm, I'm going to act and they move, and it's just like, 
dude, you're going to get eaten alive. You're gonna literally going to get swallowed up because you need a resume so people know who the fuck you are and why they, you deserve a shot. And then True. you need to know how the industry works just like any other. So uh, my plan is to stay in New York for a little while. Um, I'm actually saving up right now to be able to enroll at uh, Strasburg Institute for Method Acting, which is where, like, Robert De Niro went and Joe Yeah. Uh, a very, a very well-known um, acting school. Yeah, and that's. I want to get that education along with the auditioning. Um, and I guess to, to bring it back to, to powerlifting, I guess the way that I would explain it is, you know, I, I kind of get caught up in the. Uh, oh, are you there? Oh yeah. So, so far, so, it's getting a little shaky. Okay. Maybe. Um, you know, I got. You know, when when I realized, you know, I was sure going. Age, I just kept getting caught up in the idea of, you know, oh, I need, you know, how am I going to get auditions? I need to get headshots, blah, blah, blah. Like, I need to do all this. And then I realized, taking a step back, like, hold up, dude. Like, you need to figure out what kind of actor you are and work on your skills. This would be like just signing up for powerlifting meets without going through through training cycles. Yeah, 100%. Right? Because if you're auditioning, right, in the beginning, and the beginning, can mean years worth of auditioning you're gonna get you know one liners two liners you know maybe just an appearance are you refining any skill when you're doing that no so the fact that you know i started getting really you know anxious about all this stuff too early it's like hold up like practice get education figure out like what the hell you're supposed to do and then actually have a skill or you know something of value to bring to the people who are going to cast you. Yeah. No, dude. And that's, and, you know, that's a very, you know, pragmatic and true way. Like that is, and that's the problem most people, you know, hit. And I know that, you know, li- cause you know, I live about an hour from LA, I live about 50 miles North of LA. And <clears throat> you, and I know so many people who, just like you said, they move here too fast and they've never done anything past, you know, some theater in high school or maybe college and it's and they don't and they don't know how to represent themselves they don't know how to be professional they just want to go in all artsy and be like i'm an artist and they're like we don't care so it's you know and so good good for you and dude that that school is prestigious i'm i mean i'm an old theater theater geek growing up and uh, strasburg is known and I can only imagine the cool people and classes that you can learn there. So good for you for like finding out that education. And I think that also speaks to you as a lifter, like you're, you know, you're intelligent and you're methodical, you know, yeah. um, which by the way, I saw your, you know, some of your, your, uh, your uh, accent reels, which are fucking awesome. The Joker one, dude, the Joker one fucking had me and you even had like like the the facial like the facial tics and everything, so that was awesome. Thank you, man. You did. Yeah, that dude, that performance is like one of my favorite movie performances of all time. I've, I've watched it enough times that at this point I can just like you know just yeah just do go along with his his weird quirks and all that stuff. Yeah, and just to get into his that that cadence that he has, which is it's kind of just like slippery, almost lucid. Uh, type it's of very speech. The, yeah, the thing that I try to do when I put myself in that you know, character, it's like, it's almost, I don't even think about the voice first. Like, the voice comes 
after I put myself into this like very like loosey goosey, flowy, almost like uh, careless sort of of, of uh, posture and demeanor, yeah. like the voice. It's enhanced and comes after you get that rather than just trying to go for the voice, you know, in the beginning. Yeah, and I think that you said that loose that he is that's one of the best incarnations of that character that Heath Ledger did was he gave it that lucid devil may care, just even with his posture. Like he does like he's yeah. not defensive. Like you can hit him and he'll let you hit you and he'll stab you while you hit you while he hits you. Yeah. You know, and like that's you know, that's that's part of it. So that type of attention to detail is uh i thought was i truly was really good and i uh, appreciated that and uh and also just doing the character justice so um but of course reeling back into you know of course powerlifting because i do want to pick your brain about that um one of the things that you know that you're known that at least for me known for is your approach to programming um which is you know why you know garrett uh says that why he wanted to train with you um, and your eye for technique. So what is, or rather I could say, what has developed you from when you started lifting, kind of going into an intermediate and then into an, an advanced athlete in the sport, um, what kind of learning along the way of programming did you do? And then how did that translate to, you know, your approach to programming now? Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely speak on that. So the first thing, I have to give credit uh, to all the people who you know paved the way for me, essentially, all the mentors that I've had over the years. Um, first being um, my strength and conditioning coach that I had for baseball, Billy Rom, uh, who still works with him. Um, he himself has also powerlifted before and just has a stronger understanding of periodization than I would say 99% of like strength and conditioning coaches for athletes out there. Um, he's a very, very smart dude and just constantly seeks optimal. And uh, I think that's really important because I think a lot of people are always focused on, um, you know, there's these like hard and fast rules you know, to everybody. And I learned really early on and you know that wasn't the case and when he ended up the pickup powerlifting when we were when I was in high school, um, you know, he, he told me all the time, like, dude, you're not gonna be able to do this in baseball at the same time, so like get that thought out of your head. But if this is something you wanna do, like I will teach you, you know, what I know. And he grew up um, you know, around the time of, you know, West Side. Um, he wasn't too hard into, you know, a lot of the crazy variations you see of piercing your training it's certainly something that west side pioneered even if they didn't call it periodization so kind of those fundamentals were ingrained in me really early on um and just something that i you know took seriously wanting to learn like i was just new to it and just you know took to the internet internet like most people do and just kind of learned everything i could um from him and then when it came time where I was like, you know, I want to compete at, you know, high level meets, wanted to do national stuff like that. I started working with Joey and so I guess what I learned from him and learned with him was that I think power, um, especially the USAPL um, has grown a lot in the past couple of years. And so has the quality of coaching and, Though 
he was my coach, we both kind of came up together as coaches. We both started coaching, you know, some high-profile lifters, um, you know, both started gaining popularity and both spoke, you know, to people in the same circles like, you know, Alberto Nunez, um, you know, Eric Helms, just like had quality information at our disposal and and, and within conversation breach uh, from guys who had been around, you know, teaching this stuff for years. And the thing that I learned most from that is just I've been to so many meets, I've competed in so many meets, and when I started coaching people, I had coached 20 people for free, like the first year and a half of me coaching. And I just learned from being at so many meets all the little nuances of what it takes to make somebody strong. Um, I actually saw a story from Brendan Teets today that was one comment that he made that was pretty good is like, you know, everybody thinks they're a snowflake and they're special. And while that's not necessarily true, like our bodies are all governed by the same underlying principles, how those principles get, you know, they, they manifest themselves in big differences when it comes to programming. And I've thinking and not to toot my own horn, but being an intelligent person, you tend to seek the you know the deeper understanding and don't just adhere to these rules of like, oh, you program a five by five for somebody or stuff like that. Like the, the volume, the the frequency, the overall load, the relative intensity, all that stuff is individual to people. And, you know, I just learned that from trial and error over the years because I've had I had plenty of people in the beginning who would not have great meets, you know. And you learn, right? Like to, for any coach to say that they've always had, you know, successful athletes, like they always have nine for nine meets, they've always, they're either lying or they haven't worked with enough people long enough because you're going to find some outlier along the way. Or you're going to find a mistake that you've made. So just, you know, I've been coached for like five, over yeah. five years and um, I've probably worked with, I don't know, a hundred, a little over a hundred, probably a hundred athletes at this point. And, um, I mean, that's, that's honestly the, the big thing when it comes to programming. Like you just need to analyze trends, like, like observing patterns and recognizing why they're happening or digging deeper to figure out why they're happening is what makes a group. Like, I think a lot of people will program and see results, um, but when things plateau, it, they kind of have it's like, oh shit, like I don't know what happened, rather than, you know, along the way, you know, recognizing patterns that, that come up, or maybe going back and looking at the training logs and realizing, you know, what inputs were training that led to these undesirable outputs and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and all that makes sense, and that's just, you know, accounting for all of the variables that you can, which all do matter because yep. they, they compound and they accumulate. Um, what are, I guess, you know, again, like you said, trends, there are, you know, the major trends and they all will manifest specifically depending on the individual. What are some common trends, though, that you do, you know, I guess use now or that you notice now, um, like two or three yeah, sure. So the the one that I'll say first is RTS has coined this term, which is emerging strategies. And the concept is essentially measuring people's time to peak um, on a given microcycle. So if somebody, you know, if you run the course of some microcycle with somebody, so you have this week set for them, you keep it the same, and you see how they're progressing, you notice that, you know, after four weeks, they 
peak and then they drop off and like, you know, basically determining, you know, how long you can milk a specific microcycle for um, is a really valuable thing to know because I think so many people get caught up in the, this idea. And I've had clients say this to me. They look at their, you know, they look at their training. They're like, oh, what's changing next week? And it's like nothing, dude. Like if you're adapting positively to this stimulus, why the hell would you change it, right? If you're making progress, a specific daily setup, right? If we start changing things, either we can go in one of two directions here, right? Or we can technically go in three directions. One would be, you know, increase volume, and that's never the answer if you're thriving because eventually you'll reach your MRV or pass it and blow yourself out. We could increase intensity, which can only last so long before you get injured, or we could pull back, which would make no sense because if you're thriving on a certain amount of volume, then reducing it would be suboptimal. Um, so I think that the, the one of the biggest trends I've observed is like, you know, if you have an athlete just succeeding with the same with the same microcycle, it's like it's definitely worth letting it run its course, and don't don't be too trigger happy to change things too early just because you know the nsca says you should periodize in four week blocks you know what i mean yeah uh sorry that i'm rambling i know these are long explanations no 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 by by all means i love these explanations so i mean that's uh that's kind of the point of the show that i'm hoping to get i want i want, I want people to be able to because you know, just to make you feel better, I think there's a lot of really good podcasts out there. I know, like, you have a great podcast. Um, there's Ritual. There's um, Tony Montgomery's uh, Beyond the Platform and a bunch of other good yeah. ones. Um, but I don't feel – I feel like those are a bunch of, like, really you know, high-level people who are just having great conversation, which you learn from. But there's not really something where – not always, anyway uh, – yeah. place where – people can go and they know that at the end of the episode, they're going to walk away with something they could apply like right now, or, you know, just learn something out of it. So by all means, I'm, I invite your ramblings and I really like what you said about, you know, running the course. Cause I, I agree. I think too many times people will change things and I've seen it, um, in all, in all different kinds, you know, types of sport. Um, you know, people don't allow us a, a skill to develop long enough for the body yeah. to really, it's like people, they, they, they jump on the dick of muscle confusion, uh, or like, you know, or just, I need to do this and that when they haven't even gotten really good. It's like, why are you going to, uh, you know, squat on a, you know, on a SS, you know, eh, SSB, maybe not, but some crazy bar. If you're not even good on a straight bar yet. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a really it's a really valid point that it's okay to let things run their course. And if it's working, why, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Um, what would be another trend in terms of, you know, I mean, you kind of did explain uh, how someone will, how, you know, adjust to the stimuli, but in terms of how you. I, I, I have a couple others. I got Okay. Them. Go ahead. Go, go for it. Um, so the other, the other two, uh, one of them is that I found that lightweight lifters definitely respond better to higher reps um, and having higher rep work longer, meaning are more close to year round. 
and closer into meats than either some guys who are not natural or guys who are heavier. Um, and the same goes for girls even more so. So, you know, the lightest weight girl definitely responds better to higher rep work um, than the lightest weight guy. But, you know, I've found that lighter weight lifters tend to respond better to higher rep work um, than some heavier guys. And I've noticed that... Skill retention is definitely individual, so there are some people who definitely need more singles um, further out from meets than others. Some can maintain top in the last four weeks before a meet we can add singles in, but some need it you know, much earlier than that. Um, but I've found 100% that you know, there are too many people who think that strength is only built in these lower rep ranges. And I've seen both through observing and through experience with my lifters directly that, you know, coming into a meet with too many weeks of lower rep work overall, I've found my lifters, and again, it's usually the case with lighter lifters, so I'm saying anywhere from 93 or 83 to below, usually I would say 83 to below, um, they tend to flatline after just a couple weeks working in lower rep ranges. Even if volume is equated to what they were doing on higher rep days, I notice that lifters tend to fall flat and burn out pretty quickly um, once they've moved out of kind of that upper rep range work. Um, for example, you know, you could have a, let's say, a 3 by 8 on your first squat day of the week and a 4 by 6 on your second squat day of the week if you squatted two days a week. That is something I would consider closer to the higher rep ranges if we were four weeks out, three weeks out from a meet. Um, I've noticed that if you decide, like, you know, like this goes back to analyzing trends, right? If you decide even against all evidence, right, a lifter could be crushing you know, they're training, PRing every week on these higher rep ranges, right? But you decide, oh, we're this many weeks out, let's transition into lower reps. And, you know, even controlling for volume, um, the lifters tend to flatline in strength. And you would think, oh, it's more specific to be working in those lower rep ranges. But I've found that once you remove that, um, you know, that upper rep range work stimulus, they tend to burn out pretty quick. It's interesting. I wonder if that, if that has to do with kind of the the their bodies like neurosynapse, like muscle contraction, like power output. You know, if, if their body's used to that higher volume and it's used to contracting optimally because it's adapted to that. That once you then add in that lower rep range, you know, too you know too early, like you said, that that's it's like going against what the nervous system has been building up for weeks on end. I want, I mean, that'd be just my reaction to that. I wonder. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure uh, what the explanation is, but I definitely have seen um, literature just discussing um, hypertrophy gains from um, varying rep ranges. And I think there was one study, and again, I, I can't cite it right now, so I won't, I won't pretend to know who published it, but I remember seeing it shared, um, I believe, either by Helms or um, Menno uh, Henselman um, about women and their, um, their one rep max increases as well as their hypertrophy and lean muscle gain increases. Um, and they found that working in much higher rep ranges than you know, the other group um, led not only to, you know, more lean tissue gain, but also increases in, um, top end strength as well. Yeah. 
it would it makes I think it would make sense. And also um, to kind of maybe to add to that, I have. And maybe it's just my head. I'm a little dyslexic, so I make connections weirdly sometimes. Um, one of my friends just went to one of one of Yuri Belkin's seminars, um, of which, when asked about his type, his volume specifically for squat and deadlift, um, in you know of like kind of like how long he works out for, what kind of volume he does, he responded, and again, it's Yuri uh, that his his workouts for his lower is squat and deadlift are three to four hours long. Because he does so much volume on each of his weight jumps. Like he, he takes time to do volume at every single jump, whether it's the bar and then a plate and then two plates. Um, you know, he, he puts in reps at all of them and then obviously the rest and everything. So um, his and he feels that that's what's needed essentially to build up. So he's doing lots of reps and volume, even if he's doing doubles or triples for his top sets. Um, and yeah, I wonder if that has to, you know, if that's him at his low, you know, warming up and at his lower weights, trying to get that extra volume in for that, uh, you know, positive tissue adaption. Yeah. Yeah. Just cause it sounds similar. It'd be cool. Yeah. You know, definitely another factor. Um, and I guess to why it works is, you know, lighter lifters are, you know, on average going to be weaker than heavier lifters. They're lifting less absolute weight. Um, and because of that, they can handle more volume because the total load and fatigue that they're accumulating is just less of a stressor on the body than if you were, you know, a 260-pound guy squatting, you know, 700 pounds for reps, let's say. You're a 150-pound guy squatting in the, you know, high threes or 400 for reps. So accumulating um, more volume is definitely more manageable for those lighter guys um also uh what was i going to say i'm sorry um we can agree on that um you know equivalent volume you know if let's say you have a three by seven and uh you know a five by four right the the three by seven is definitely less stress on your connective tissue and your joints and your you know the structure of your body, your bones, and all of that. So it's definitely a way that you can accumulate volume and practice the skill that is more sustainable throughout the course of a year, right? So, like, if you're looking over, you know, let's let's step back for a second and say, all right, we're not looking at four weeks going into a meet, but over the course of a year, if we can accumulate more volume, volume of reps that are quality and reps that aren't beating up on our connective tissue that lead us to get injured or just lead us to be overall more achy and cause our movement quality to suffer in successive sessions, then we are definitely going to get more work in over the long term. Yeah. And that's what it's about. I think people forget like strength sports are long-term sports because good, true strength adaption happens slowly over time. Um, And in your, in your body has to evolve because that's, you know, you're you want it, you're trying to create an evolutionary stimulus to tell your body to you know grow, get denser, handle more weight, and all of that, and it takes time. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, that's just the part of the nature of you know our sport is people always want more now, and yeah. it doesn't work that way. Um, what a let's I would like to segue into you know what trends do you see specifically for the lifts? So for squat, bench, and deadlift. What are maybe some common trends um, that you see work positively? And then what are maybe uh, common mistakes that you see for each of them too? 
you saying trends like in programming or you're just saying things that I see often? Um, you know what? I, I was thinking about trends you see often, but I would be interested to hear trends you see programming wise and maybe both if you if you want, if you like. Give me all, all the things, Sean, all the things. All right. Well, <laughs> I, think, I think the easier one to start with is just things that I see often. Um, okay. Squat. I'm actually doing a, a uh, collaboration informative video with, with Dr. Pat Davidson next week, who is probably one of the smartest guys that powerlifters don't know about. I, I follow him, and I saw you were doing that, and I got really excited because I love his shit. He's, he's incredible. Um, and uh, definitely having mentors in uh, that circle have been huge for improving uh, movement quality of myself, movement quality of my lifters, and then just overall pain management. Um, but one thing that I noticed with squats is that even though many of us have moved past the absurdities of you know high school weight room coaching, there are still things in powerlifting that get you know that are still unfortunately around. And I think it on squat, the thing that I see the most is just kind of the excessive extension at the pelvis. The idea that you need to keep your chest up at all costs, not paying you know completely ignoring what your physiology is going to dictate, and then just shoving your knees out into oblivion because. <laughs> so knees out is bad, cave is bad, or they think that by shoving your knees out, you are going to avoid the pains that they think result from knee cave. Um, so that's definitely one of the big things that I see in that we are constantly just grooving this extension and external rotation pattern and no longer have the stability or movement variability in, in um, keeping our pelvis neutral, actually having strength in an internal rotation, um, which by the way, is absolutely necessary for reaching competition depth in a squat. Um, your femur needs to internally rotate and move into the back of the hip capsule in order for you to actually achieve hip flexion. So I think people just over the years of training um, just accumulate those bad patterns or practice in those bad patterns. Um, and I think the, the thing that I see manifest itself from a sensation standpoint is people are always like, oh, I hit the hole and I just feel like I have no stability. And that's definitely attributable to the fact that you don't have control of your abductors, your hamstrings, your bracing is garbage. Um, and then the way it manifests itself in injury is people end up with patellar tendonitis, quad tendonitis, SI joint issues. Like those are super common and they all stem from the same thing. Um, they all stem from the same fundamental lack of, of variability in, in movement. Um, so we'll get into more nerdy detail about that next week in my, in my video with Pat. Um, but that's definitely one thing I notice in the squat. Um, one thing that I notice in the bench press is that people, and, and this goes for people that don't have huge arches. I think everybody is convinced that, because I've had people tell me this before who don't know me that well, they think that I try to get everybody I coach to have an arch like me. And that's not true. One, because I know a lot of people can't. And even when there are people who can, um, I have, have some people who are capable of achieving these crazy arches, but just don't have a lot of muscle left, or don't have a lot of muscle to begin with. And it doesn't make sense to just hop into this hyper-specific way of training and always, always, always bench with this crazy arch when, like, you have no chest 
or no shoulders or no arms. Like, I definitely don't have biceps, but my triceps are strong, right? Like, there needs to be some baseline level of muscle that you need to build um, in the beginning. So for people listening who have, you know, just started powerlifting and they're like, oh, wow, I can arch and minimize or make my range of motion. I'm not against, you know, doing it in competition. Obviously, I do it. I'm not in any way saying that, you know, it shouldn't be in the rules that you can do it. Um, but I think ultimately the driver, the biggest driver for strength, especially for the people who don't fall at the end of the bell curve in terms of being genetically elite, is the cross-sectional area of your muscles. You need more muscle to be stronger. Um, so that's one of the things that, you know, people who have crazy arches, like, take the time to also build muscle. Um and then this goes for everybody, whether you arch or whether you bench with a relatively flat back and just kind of pin your scaps together, is that the bench press, regardless, should be a full body movement. And what I mean by that is you see a lot of people, you know, in competitions, they'll get to their chest and then you see this really aggressive hip thrust of leg drive. And I think that that style of benching is just very inefficient um, because I think your leg drive should be constant throughout the entire bench press. Um, whether you have your feet directly underneath you, whether you have them in front of you, you should be pushing 110% all your effort from the moment the bar is unracked to the moment that you finish the press. And the reason I say that is all about leveraging and positioning of the bar because the bar obviously is out in front, right? If, if I have my shoulders up here on the bench, right, the bar is obviously out in front of that, and I'm going to be bringing the bar down to my chest, right? right. If, we think about this, really, if we think about this from a really straightforward physics standpoint, right, our center of mass is now, if we're pushing with our legs and have all our weight back here, our center of mass is going to shift forward as we are benching, right, as the weight comes down. And it's really easy to lose the setting or the positioning that you get in your scapulas as the weight on the bar gets heavier. The heavier the bar gets, the harder and more demanding any position you get into is going to be. So by using that leg drive, you are able, if you're doing it correctly, you should be trying to keep all of the weight on the back of your neck and leverage yourself into that position you create, create in your upper back. You want to keep all of that pressure behind the bar so you don't lose yourself forward when you get to the chest. There are so many people that you see in training and meets, whatever, that they descend with the bar and it's just like this really loose, just kind of, oh, I'm going to let my pecs just stretch until the bar hits my chest. It's like, no, you need to be creating tension in the back and driving yourself back and up into the bar so that you actually have this structural stability and tension to resist the bar when it gets to your chest, right? If you did, if you gave up, the bar would just fucking cut you in half or crack your ribcage, right? So you want to have some sort of active resistance going into the bar. And I think that that comes from using your legs to keep yourself on, you know, on the back of your neck and, and keeping your, keeping the pressure in your back. And then also pinching from the mid back and kind of trying to drive yourself up into the bar. Um, one of the, one of the cues that I give a lot of my lifters. And like I said, it doesn't matter if your range of motion is five inches. It doesn't matter if you bench like Ellis McLean with your arms just straight up. Think about the bar going 90% and you go the other 10%. So anybody who's seen hitch, have you seen that? I have. I have seen Hitch. 
Do you remember? Do you remember when when Will Smith's teaching Kevin James about the kiss, and he says, "You go ninety, and I go 10? Yeah, yeah, 90-10, 90-10. You win full hundred. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what I tell people when they bet. You should be able to create enough tension that it feels like the bar can only go that ninety, and you meet it with the other ten percent. Because every increment of weight you add to the bar, right? It's in a meet, right? You can have the bar speed on a second attempt that would say, oh, I can definitely press out another five kilos. But you have to remember, it's not just you're adding weight to the bar and the bar speed should slow down proportionally. You're forgetting about that first portion of the lift that now becomes so much more demanding when you're actually approaching the chest, right? So the bar speed of a second attempt may be indicative of five kilos more, but the breakdown that you experience as you approach 100% might not scale linearly, right? So you could break down adding five kilos more at a rate that you wouldn't expect, right? It's not, not always one-to-one. Oh, no, not not at all. I mean, on my last meet, I, I had a good first two attempts, but I, on my third attempt, which was only five kilos more, and I, I fucking couldn't get it off my chest, and it sucked. <laughs> yeah. That's, that, I mean, making making the touch at your chest look the same every attempt is the easily the best way to to improve your bench. Um, because, like I said, it's just going to get harder and harder to maintain tension when you get to the chest as the weight gets heavier. I think that's you said two really really good points there. That you know the um, the adding the adding of the loading up on the bar or is not as you go up is not uh, linear, you know, scalable in a linear fashion. And then having the touch be the same for every attempt, you know, and, and making it be the same in every attempt. I think those are two, uh, it was all good points, but I think those, those two really stood out to me as uh, unique. So thank you for those. Those were yep. good. Um, and then the pools. The deadlift. Um, so, as far as conventional deadlifts go, I think just kind of the fundamentals um, take care of it. Really think that having a having strong proficiency in hinge pattern is definitely important. Like you need to be able to hinge to pull conventional well. Um, so not just you know not squatting too low, kind of like the basic thing that you kind of always get told. Um, proper bracing, really setting your pelvis into a strong neutral position. Um, one thing I see a lot of people do with their deadlifts, whether it's sumo or conventional, is they try to flex their back into neutral. And I think this is like a really backwards way of trying to be strong on a deadlift. Like you, I'm sure you've seen it where the people are setting up and they like actively f- retract their scaps and flex the extensors of their back to try to keep a neutral spine. And you're 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 looking at the you know you're you're looking at the trees when you should be looking at the the forest here, right? The 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 way that you get into a strong position all comes from from the pelvis right it all comes from the core it comes from using your abs and obliques and uh, hamstrings and adductors the muscles surrounding the pelvis will create the neutrality right you shouldn't be actively trying to just flex yourself into neutral right so it goes back to establishing that good hinge pattern and actually you know bracing properly i don't think about my lower back when i deadlift i don't tell people i tell people don't think about your lower back think about the 
the inputs, right? I, I say this all the time. Think about the inputs and not the outputs, right? The output is very much like the guy at the gym looking at the mirror, right? He's looking at himself and deadlifting in the mirror, and he's like, all right, I'm going to flex my back. I'm going to flex these muscles in my back to make my back look straight, right? Those are very output-driven you know, cues, you want to focus on the inputs, right? Am I bracing correctly? Am I using my abs? Am I using my obliques? Am I hinging properly, right? These are the things that allow your physiology to put you in a good position, right? Because everyone's deadlift's not going to look the same when you have different, you know, different length levers, right? So focusing on those inputs of proper bracing, proper hinging, that's how you get into the ideal deadlift position, not, you know, flexing your back to make it look neutral in front of a mirror, right? Yeah. No, I think that is, it's actually the echoes. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. I just want to say one more. Oh, yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, yeah, because neutral isn't strong if the the structure of stability, structural stability didn't create the neutral, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's. I was going to say it's very much, um, I, I have the image, it kind of gives me the imagery of a, of a tree. Like you need to go from the roots up. You can't, if you yeah. want to be stable. And like you said, that's what, when you said insertions, the inputs, I, w I had the image of roots. Like you need to root at the, you know, the insert, the origins and insertions of, you know, your pelvis, which is your center. And if that's strong, then, you know, as those travel upwards, will, you know, will brace, you know, in the layman term speaking, they're going to do their job. Um, and that echoes, it's also something I've been really working on. Um, is about, you know, getting that center, pel that, uh, like you said, getting the pelvis center and working on that and then letting everything else take care of itself. Um, instead of working, you know, top down, you, you work from, you know, pelvis up um, to get that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, and, I, and I, like you said, also, um, people just lack the understanding of, of movement and you know what the anatomy does like it's you know or what um in the like like you said if you can actually get you know your pelvis under control that's going to lead into everything else doing what it needs to do you don't need to to over exert you know pinch the scaps to get that um when you're yep. your bracing is garbage um hashtag sean said you're bracing bracing is garbage um <laughs> <laughs> and um but i think it's just like one of the biggest things uh, i think for anyone to work on is if they can keep um more uh one of my my coach who i work with on the back of his phone he has his background is a skeleton of a, of a rib cage and it says own your fucking rib cage and i think that's uh a really you know a really important one because it's like if you know you have these people who can't you know f match up their rib cage to their pelvis and line those up and, and it's hard and it's counterintuitive, um, especially if people are like, you know, very, um, you know, just very in an overextended pattern. They're just stuck in that overextended pattern and they have a hard time kind of bringing it down. Um, yep. What, you know, what would be, I was trying to, I, I had it, I had it and then I lost it too, but it was really good points. Fuck. Um, <laughs> I know I, I've been I've been talking so long that it's easy to. I, it's to your voice your on. your voice is mesmerizing and it's just you know it's hard to keep up. So just, <laughs> I am your everyone's going to be lost in it and it's uh it's part it's part of your part of your magic. Um, yes, 
Um, anatomy, I think, you know, kind of going into something a little bit more for like, in, for the like most frequently asked question from a very much a beginner when they're trying to find their stance for the deadlift, what is something that you look for? Like say, if you're working with someone to help them kind of find their primary, you know, the strongest stance, whether they're more suited for sumo or conventional. So in the terms of quality is just very um they're very new to the barbell movements right yes never ever 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 have somebody like it wouldn't even come to my mind to say oh are you sumo or conventional you're starting off conventional because you whether you're pulling sumo or conventional you need to learn how to hinge properly and Mm -hmm. if you take somebody who is very much so a new to the barbell movements the big three just moving weight general um you're adding another variable that just progresses you know you're you're, you have a system right that has a certain amount of information that needs to be understood for it to function properly and if you add this other variable of sumo which has its all all another host of cues that you need to learn to the system it's like okay i need to now teach this person or this person essentially because it's not even just an issue of teaching it's you can only teach someone something if they have the framework to understand it right so if you're like okay now they need to learn all this complex stuff about spreading the floor and preloading tension blah 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 and they don't know how to hinge it's just too much information to throw at somebody um so if someone is new and they're and they're learning how to deadlift um and they, like if we're talking new, like strictly, you know, in the truest sense of a beginner, um, conventional is going to be the way to go. And I would simply start with regressions of the movement. Um, and I would start with regressions of of teaching them how to brace properly. So uh, a regression of a, you know, a conventional deadlift might be a kettlebell deadlift. They'll hold it in their hands and they'll learn how to hinge to all, right? It might be a dumbbell RDL. It might be a, a um, it might be teaching someone how to um, brace properly on the floor. I might have them do like a, um, you know, a 90-90, for example, a 90-90 hip lift and, and teach them how to use their, their glutes to keep their pelvis neutral, how to use their abs, use their obliques. It might be regressing somebody to the point of learning how to do a plank properly, right? Regressions all serve the same purpose, and I think it's important that you understand and can perform all of those before you move strictly into you know a competition movement. And it's not to say I wouldn't you know if someone came to me and they're just starting powerlifting, obviously they're going to be deadlifting on a barbell because that's the specificity of the sport. But it is definitely a you know in order to ensure that they learn how to hinge and deadlift properly, we have to make sure that they can do the regressions of the lift properly. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, is under undervalued as a, as a concept because, again, so many people want, you know, want more too fast. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that. Like, as someone who is uh, very learning, ch- you know, just, you know, learning challenged, and um, I've always had to break things down and regress. And so regressions and learning things into bite-sized pieces um, and, you know, learning maybe a different type of, of um, you know, I guess you say an entrance into a concept, you know, is really invaluable. And I agree. I think, and that's how I do it. When I've, I've also, I 
uh, been a personal trainer on the side before I got into powerlifting. And it was the same thing where, you know, it's like bef before I can teach you how to deadlift with a bar, you need to be able to do it with, you know, with a kettlebell first. And then, and, you know, and then you work them up and then you, you know, you build those skills and have that skill acquisition and that muscle memory before you go and put them into something super complex where there's more room for error. And, yeah. and, and I agree. And far too long, like you said, people want too much too fast. Um, what about an intermediate lifter? Like say someone who has a couple meets under their belt and, um, and, you know, and then they, I think that's a very common question. You know, they do maybe two or three meets and, you know, they want to continue to get better. And then they're like, okay, do, should I, you know, switch between, you know, to one or the other? Um, what is something like if, you know, as a coach, if one of your athletes, you know, came to you or what would you look for to be like, no, you need to, whoops. Lost you again. All right, we're good. It's okay. That's okay. That's that's why there's the edit button in post in post. So yeah. <laughs> fix it in post. Um, sorry, where did I cut out? You were asking me about intermediates and whether or not they wanted to switch. Yes. When when would it be appropriate to switch, or what would you look for to determine if some you know someone is better suited for one or the other? Uh, that's a good question. Um, because the unfortunate answer to that is definitely, uh, it depends. Um, I think that people who are, you know, the typical deadlift guy who, you know, David Wilson is definitely an example of this. I, to a degree, am an example of this. Uh, the guys with short torsos, long legs and long arms, um, they can kind of get away with either. Like those guys are usually, it's usually just a, okay, which one are you stronger at kind of deal. Um, you know, barring, barring the people who really have, um, you know, people who don't have these retroverted hips and they really can't open up, um, that is obviously a, kind of a, you know, that's a no-go for sumo. You know, if, if they physically are just restricted by their, their bone structure um, from pulling sumo, that's obviously a no-brainer. They can't. Um, but the guys who are capable and they kind of have the prototypical deadlift levers, you know, like I said, short torso, long legs, long arms, um, no, go with everyone feels stronger. Um, but there's a caveat to that because sumo deadlift, unfortunately, um, is not really one of those lifts that you can try one day and it's going to feel stronger. It's something that takes a really long time to build proficiency in um, because we tend to I think most people will just pull a sumo deadlift like a wide stance conventional. And like I was saying, there's a, you know, aside from needing to know at hinge, there's another, there's another level of, of technical proficiency that comes with the sumo deadlift. So like I said, if somebody tries sumo and they feel stronger and they have the levers for it, great, go with sumo over conventional. Um, but if you are somebody who, you know, is intermediate, so obviously, you know, winning big meets is not something that's on your radar. Um, you're just trying to get better. I tell people who, you know, have the, the, the leverages and the physiology to be able to pull sumo, it's like you have to give it a considerable amount of time before you can definitively say, okay, I am better conventional because 99% of people, they're going to try sumo and it's not going to feel better off the bat and that doesn't necessarily mean you're not built for it it doesn't mean you have weak quads or something like that it literally just means that you are not yet 
good at the movement. Um, you know, I honestly only feel like my sumo deadlift has become a sumo deadlift within the past eight months, six to eight months. And I've been pulling sumo since the end of 2016. Um, so obviously I'm not going to tell somebody, oh, you got to try sumo for three years to figure out whether or not it works for you. But it's going to take an incredibly long period of time to pick up that skill because you're so used to lifting things off the floor in a certain way and the whole concept of preloading the floor and the, and the force vectors, right? Because it's no longer just straight down. You have to be pushing down and in the direction your toes are pointing. Um, there's just these little nuances that come with, with pulling sumo that, that, you know, that kind of, you know, take time to learn. Um, and it's another skill to develop on top of developing your normal deadlifting skills. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a shitty answer saying it depends, but I guess those are kind of the, the guidelines that I go by. If you're, if you're built to deadlift, you kind of have to just go with whatever feels stronger because chances are you'll, you'll thrive in either scenario. Um, it's just a matter of preference. Um, but if you are, I think in most cases, I would say the people who don't have deadlift levers also aren't really meant to pull sumo. Um, you know, some of the, the really short kind of stocky guys you see will just pull sumo anyway, but it's usually like this hybrid stance. It's not, to me, not really a true sumo. And the reason I say that it's not like a, a dig at them, like saying, like, oh, you don't really pull sumo. It's just more so a reflection of their, of their physiology. There are a lot of people who are just kind of short-limbed who also can't really... I tend to see that people who are really short limbed, you know, short arms, long torso, short legs, they also tend to not have this crazy ability to externally rotate at the hip. So it usually ends up being the case that while they're not really built to deadlift, um, they're definitely not built to sumo deadlift. So their option is kind of just to pull conventional or maybe in the case that that person will feel good in like a, you know, narrow stance kind of egg cone style of sumo. Yeah, that, that frog stance sumo it looks yeah. like. Kind of that froggy sumo, which makes sense. Um, and do you ever feel, you know, you as a coach ever see benefit uh, of, you know, having your athletes train, uh, go between the two? Uh, like for me, I know that I working both has um, really have helped my like my technique, like learning sumo and getting uh, as, you know, working on that at different times helps my conventional. And honestly, I pull, I, when I pull conventional, I go through a sumo sequence in my head. Like I think about the same cues and I'm obviously in a different position, but it helps me take more slack out of the bar. Um, you know, get as close to the bar as possible. And uh, for me, the better I got at a sumo, you know, the sumo technique, the better my conventional got because I didn't, I was more, uh, more aware um, and to the point where actually my conventional is better than my sumo now, even though that's the sequence in my head that I go through. So, um, yeah, do you ever, do you ever see maybe it's just that one, the crossover there? Uh, yeah, I think I, I've definitely seen, so your case is definitely going to be the opposite of what I'm going to say. Um, I don't have anyone who is, you know, hell bent on pulling conventional full sumo. To me, it doesn't make uh, a whole lot of sense. And the reason I say that again is that, you know, first of all, conventional deadlifting, unless you are just 
really built to deadlift. You know, people like, for example, people with really long arms, their starting position, like their torso could be more upright than some people pulling sumo. Um, so unless, you know, 99% of people don't fall into that category. Um, but conventional deadlift volume of all the big three, I think is the most taxing thing that you can do. Yeah. And, and because of that, not only would pulling sumo be, you know, less specific, I think it can be very disruptive, um, to your, um, you know, your fatigue management and recovery, not only on the deadlift, but on the squat. Uh, because you're definitely using your quads more um, than on a conventional deadlift. I think that there are better ways to teach um, preloading tension on a conventional deadlift than having somebody do the opposite stance. I think that um, beltless deadlifts are a good way because you know you are reducing the load on the bar, but I think people do a better job of rather they're more aware of bracing properly because now they don't have this belt around them. Um, you definitely learn how to kind of fill up air all the way around and feel your abs and obliques um, a lot better. And you also tend to get less on the bar that way because you know you don't have a belt on and you're afraid you might snap your shit up, right? Yeah. So I think beltless deadlifts are a great way to teach that. I think pause deadlifts are a great way to teach that. I think that... Um, RDLs are a great way to teach kind of maintaining that tension. So, you know, the short answer after I've just said all that is I don't I don't have any conventional deadlifters that I have do sumo, but I do have sumo deadlifters that I have do conventional. And I'll say that the kind of the breakdown or the two categories I would split that into is if somebody is really, really, really proficient at a sumo deadlift, um, the conventional deadlift involvement not only are they proficient, but they're strong at it. The conventional deadlift involvement will not be that high. And the reason I say that goes back to what I was saying about conventional deadlifts. They are very taxing. They're very fatiguing. And to me, whatever you know, weak point bringing up I can do with a conventional, it's likely outweighed by how much diminishing returns I'm going to get by fatiguing their competition lift um, when they're so good at it. So in a situation like that, to me, it makes a lot more sense to, um, you know, to focus on, on being more comp specific, the lifters that I have who might not be as, as, um, you know, as proficient at a sumo deadlift, I'll definitely have them, um, you know, outside of prep, do uh, stiff leg deadlifts, conventional deadlifts, beltless conventional deadlifts um, as a way to build their posterior chain more while they're also, you know, progressing and trying to get more proficient um, at the sumo deadlift. Because I think I've said this on an Instagram story before. I think somebody asked me one time, like, if I had to teach or instruct one exercise for the rest of my life, what would it be? And I think it would be the RDL. Um, I just think that, that teaching people how to set their pelvis and move their rib cage in conjunction with their pelvis is a very valuable skill. Um, you build out of muscle that way. You keep the spine healthy. Um, and it's something that I always have programmed. So even if people pull sumo, they probably will have a, a dumbbell RDL or like a light barbell RDL in their programs just to make sure that that pattern is being you know improved upon at, because you know they're spending time away from it by pulling sumo. Um, but yeah, the guys who are just sumo deadlift gods 
see more progress on the lift than, than other people at quicker rates. It's I'm not going to disrupt that because at the end of the day, if they're healthy and they're making progress, you know, there's no sense in trying to reinvent the wheel. Right. If they're if they're moving and grooving, then, then I'm not going to I'm not going to make any changes to that. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. And I think that's just something, especially newer, newer guys and, you know, maybe not intermediate, but kind of going towards intermediate. Um, I feel like that's a very commonly, you know, thing that they kind of will argue with themselves or amongst each other about um, and whatnot. So, um, so good. I'd like to segue into I collected questions on the instas for you. Um, and, uh, I kind of, I figured we could go through them and you could, um, answer them kind of reactionary, like just give the answer. And then, um, if you want to, you know, break down after that, uh, you can, you can, uh, but I want to make sure that I, I get, I get to them. So, um, and some of them I, I did add to myself, but I collected a good, a couple. Um, all right. So first one is, uh, favorite hero and favorite villain. Favorite hero and favorite villain. Oh man. So my, my favorite my favorite superhero, you know, independent of like the you know the cinematic universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is Spider Man. I grew up reading the comics, playing the video games, like on the PC, playing with the action figures. The Spider Man universe is definitely just my overall favorite. So Spider-Man is my favorite superhero, but my favorite MCU superhero is Iron Man. Um, and that's just because of the, the homage that, that Robert Downey Jr. has paid to the character and kind of how he just, he, there's nobody else who could have been Tony Stark. No, not, not at all. Nobody else who could have been Tony no, Stark. Not at all. He, he, he did his research. He is perfect. It's like, if you read the comics and you, it, he, he got everything. He got everything. I think. And then favorite villain, uh, just because, like I said, I grew up on on Spider Man uh, is Venom. Venom yeah. is my fa- my favorite villain um, in in uh, from Marvel and then in the MCU thus far. It'd probably be a tie between. Uh, actually, you know what? I'm going to backtrack. I'm going to say from the comics, Doctor Doom and Venom, and then in the MCU. Yes. Tie. I'll say it's a tie between Thanos and Loki. Nice. I love Loki. Yeah, Doctor Doom is what I grew up on with Spider-Man. I had the old, like, 1960s VHS that my dad had got me with the doc- with <laughs> Doctor Doom, dude. And that's, like, I, I, I love those. Um, okay, second. Um, so, basically, I mix up the questions to go from, like, miscellaneous, like, about Sean and, like, actually, you know, like, more powerlifting. Um, yeah. How to do a great taper and recover during your taper. You know, tapering for, for powerlifting is very individual. So how much volume you reduce is uh, is totally independent to the lifter. Um, so I'm not going to go into all the nuances there. But I will say that people often need less of a bench taper than they do a squat or deadlift taper. Um, but doing all the right things is obviously, you know, the, the, the shit everybody knows. Getting enough sleep, drinking enough, eating enough. Um, if you're somebody who has to cut weight for a meet, which is a lot of people, a lot of people I think nowadays do some sort of, of weight cut or water cut in going into meets, um, definitely have someone in charge of your weight cut 
who knows what they're doing, or if you know what you're doing, make sure that you're executing it properly. I see way too many people doing cardio the week of a meet to try to lose weight, people drastically cutting carbs to try to lose weight, and they end up overshooting their cut, um, or people saunaing like days before the meet. Um, yeah, the, the, the weight loss, there's kind of like a hierarchy of how stressful the intervention is, and you always just want to start with the least stressful ways of intervening with your body weight and you know only work up that, that, that pyramid if need be. So, you know, if you can lose all your weight just by spitting, it's a very small weight cut, that would obviously be the best option. Um, low residue foods would be the next best option. So switching to foods that are just really lightweight and calorie dense, um, doing a typical water load where you only really drop off the sodium towards the end of the, um, the very stressful, um, hopping on a stationary bike the morning of would be the next option, then going to sauna, then going to hot bath. Um, and obviously if your cut is humongous, you probably have to reduce calories during the week, but to anybody doing that, they can expect their taper to have less of an effect, right? Because you're going to inevitably lose some strength if you have to implement, you know, multiple interventions to lose weight. Yeah, definitely. Um, number three, favorite actor. It's like, ask him taper or, or powerlifting. It's like, yeah, I got answers. Ask him the actor. Fuck. I don't know. Um, if you Christoph give, Waltz, I, I don't think I can give you a number one, but I can say, I can say Christoph Waltz, Leonardo DiCaprio, um, God damn, this is tough. I know, it's a tough one. Wow. Um, I'd have to think about it more, so I'm going to give you those two. I, that, that's a really solid too, though. Christoph Waltz is amazing, and obviously Leonardo DiCaprio is a god among men. Um, so, yeah, I'm I I'm I'm happy with those two. Who's your favorite? My favorite. Oh, fuck, I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody asks me questions on my show. Like, I don't need to, um, my favorite favorite actor. Um, Fuck me sideways. There is... Uh, I have to agree with you. Christoph Waltz is one of my favorites. Um, Did you have an answer? Dude, I'm so sorry. No, what's even that? My, my phone literally said, your phone is overheating. It needs to cool off. I was like, what the fuck? Um... I, I blame your sultry voice. It was too hot for the phone, and it needed a break. Oh, yes. Um, uh, the answer I gave was, I agree with Christoph Waltz being amazing, but uh, then I said Daniel Day-Lewis is probably going to be much. Uh, hey, I'm also going to throw him in that mix there. Yeah, Daniel, I, I, he is phenomenal. I, I always joke with my with all of my like my nerdy movie friends that Daniel Day-Lewis is just, is Daniel, that, the greatest role Daniel Day-Lewis will ever play is Daniel Day-Lewis being Daniel Day-Lewis in all of his movies. Like he's, like he's, like he's doing just this ultimate meta method thing where he just becomes the greatest actor alive. And it's all just a big act to him. Uh, I don't know, but he's just, uh, the guy is, uh, 
I mean, Bill the Butcher is to this day one of my favorite characters um, on, in the cinematic universe. Everything he did, or the fact that he, the research he did to get that old New York accent, like he could have phoned that shit in and no one would have said anything, but he really did his like research to find, you know, that I really love uh, linguistics and accents. Um, voice work is some of my favorite. Um, I wish I accents require so much effort to learn the nuances of the language. Just even that exactly, and then like the facial structure, the way where the tongue is placed. Like I, I I love that shit. I love that shit. Like there, there's a guy on YouTube who's a vocal, who's like a voice coach and a linguist, and he like he reviews people movie accents. But I watch that shit for fun. Like I think it's. I I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't remember the name, but. You know, I think people people definitely don't give it enough credit because, you know, you can have, uh, you know, you can kind of like, I guess the equivalent of like hard coding. Like you could like force an accent, you know, for a sentence and it sounds good, but then it's like there's words in English language, right? And those words all sound different in different languages. So you might come across a word you haven't said before and it's said completely different when you speak with a different accent. Um, and not only that, it's like, you know, you're trying to force this accent or this voice out, but you have to realize like the accents in different areas and different dialects, like you're not just taught things in a different voice. Like the voice sounds different because you make different faces pronouncing the same letters and the same words. Yeah. It's a, it's a physical, it's a physicality. It's actually, it's a yeah, physical exactly. thing. It's like where, yeah, exactly. Your facial structure. Where the tongue is, what the lips do, mm-hmm. like how far the teeth apart. Yep. Um, the, uh, like, that's like one of, like one of the main things of like that same guy, he said like Russian accents for people fuck up is that Russians don't move their jaw or their, their, a lot. Like they don't have a lot of just like wide mouthing. And so, you know, you see people, they try to do a Russian accent and they're basically trying to talk and they're over enunciating and it, it makes them sound like a fucking, you know, cartoon character. Um, and cause that's not. It's not how Russians talk. Russians have a very still, like a still jaw, uh, very, very little mouth movement. It's and yeah, I've, seen, I've seen Russian people talk in person. My neighbor's Russian. You know, I, you go to, you know, some international powerlifting meets. People are Russian. It's just like kind of looks like you talk with their mouth, and it's just like it's like, like very like it, it's very easy mouth. Yeah, it, it's like it's like very stoic. Like if you were to cover their lips, you wouldn't know if they were talking or not unless you heard yeah. sound. Like you don't yeah. know. Um, which I think is very indicative of their culture. You just never know what the fuck they're thinking. Um, and then the same thing with like uh, Irish, which is you know really commonly um, you know mimicked accent. Like Irish is very um, it, you know very in more in the in the roof in the front of the mouth as opposed to like Scottish is more in the throat. Um, and then and then and then that's a really good example of what you said about how do they say certain words. So you can maybe make the sound. But if you don't have the physicality to mimic the consonant and the vowel um, tonage, um, you just you're 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 mimicking. You're not actually embodying. Yep. So uh, anyway, I I really geek out on that shit. Like so, <laughs> m- moving on. Um, the next question, uh, powerlifting question. Uh, how would you like to see powerlifting evolve and grow? Uh, media man. Media, media, media. Um, I think the USAPL and kind of the people up at the top are, um, you know, for for to put it in a crude way, they're old. They've been around for a while, and they like the way the sport has been for when they were in their prime. And 
I think they're less accepting of the direction that it's going in, and I think that hurts the sport. Um, because if we're thinking about it, you know, for being realistic, for being honest, the sport of powerlifting has grown so much and become so mainstream over the past couple of years. Because, like, if we're like, if we're assigning like a the biggest influencer, like it's Instagram, it's social media, it's the fact that we've been able to post videos of lifters doing crazy shit, and I think it's become main. I think all of these private companies, these media companies, right? We have so we have Loaded Bar Collective, Nine for Nine, LVD, uh, SBD has their own, uh, you know, videography. There are all these independent guys who film for guys like Russ, um, for Max Tuning, you know, Nick Wright. All these guys who bring this production value to the sport are the reason that it's grown and it's the reason that more people are watching it's the reason that the talent pool is increasing because you know it used to be this niche sport that like all these like fucking washed up you know bearded white dudes did and now it's like the sport has grown and become so diverse and the talent pool is just you know, that's why records get broken every year. It's because we are actually seeing the genetic elite take up the sport, and it's not this backwash sport that it used to be, you know, 15 years ago. So I would like to see, um, you know, I would like to see more acceptance of, of letting social media kind of make productions out of powerlifting. Um, like, I don't know if you saw, you know, some of the videos that, that SBD made for the athletes at Worlds. I did. Um, I did. They were really good. They were great. They were, they were awesome. Right? Yeah. They were, they were fantastic. They did a really good job. They really they captured. Loaded, loaded. What's up? I said they captured everyone really well. Yeah. Loaded Bar Collective and LVD up in Canada do a fucking amazing job with their with their, uh, with their meets. I think that the CPU has, has been a lot more accepting of, of having this kind of Ironically, it's in you know it's not in the U.S. It's in Canada. This more laissez-faire capitalist approach to uh, just kind of keeping a free market in terms of who gets to film and and, and photograph. Um, but yeah, man, that's kind of the direction I want to see it go in. Um, I don't know if you saw that the freaking uh, what's it called the WPO the fucking WPO yeah WPO, yeah I saw is going to be on ESPN. And it's like, I guess overall, like, if we're looking way off into the future, like 20 years from now, we'll be able to say that this was a first good step. But like, I, man, I, I, just like, it's not a good look for these guys to be the representation of what powerlifting is. Yeah, especially now. It's like, is dead. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And not only that, it's like, yeah, the raw, like raw and classic raw is the actual inclination of the sport. So like if WPO, like, I think it would be cool if WPO came back and they got the SPN deal. But you are going to have all of the divisions, raw, classic raw, single and multi. Like, you just have, like, a full gamut of a representation of the sport. Like, okay, I get behind that. Um, but just doing gear, like, yeah, like, it's, yeah. Not like, even just gear. Like, single ply is actually, in my opinion, respectable. Like, I would never do it, but it's at least respectable for the fact that Single ply's popularity lies in the IPF, and the judging is strict. Like the multiply, first of all, there's you know there are so few gyms and so few people that still do it. The 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 quality of judging is horseshit. Um, and as a sport, it's dead. It's true. I can't even like I can say single ply in the U.S. is dying, but multiply is dead. I think everyone regards it as a joke at this point. Um, and yeah, I, the thing is. 
you can't really be upset about it because Dave Hoff and all these West Side guys are the ones who took the initiative to put out this high production movie, West Side versus the World. They took the initiative to reach out to ESPN. Where's the uh, the USAPL and USPA? They're not doing it, right? Yeah. And the fact that they're not doing it is the reason that it's been allowed for the you know this to be the the, the representation of powerlifting to, to the mainstream. Yeah, and it and it's kind of and it's sad because those two federations have been you know working like in the trenches building the sport, and then you want to get a big deal and then cut and then not you know not have them or not I don't know that it just it's it was kind of a bummer. You know, it's like it was a yeah. it feels like an opportunity missed to represent like I said the sport as a whole. Because that I would have liked yeah. that. Like, yeah, we're gonna have it on ESPN. We're gonna show all facets of powerlifting as a sport, and it'll be great. But uh, unfortunately, yeah, think, yeah. Well, unfortunately, I think that showing multiple divisions just wouldn't work on on ESPN. Um, I think that the general public kind of needs to be spoon fed powerlifting, and I think introducing all of these uh, different classes, divisions, federations, um, it's just too much nuance for them to understand off the bat. Um, yeah, that's so fair. I think that it kind of needs to be just one. Yeah. But it just it does it does suck that you know people are going to see this and be like, this guy squatted a thousand pounds. It's like, eh, no, he didn't. Like, yeah. Ray Williams is squatting a thousand pounds. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. Oh man. Uh, yeah. I I think it's it's true. Well, you know, we'll we'll see how it pans out. But I, I have a feeling it'll kind of grow as you said. So, I guess we'll see. Um, next question. Favorite movie uh, in each genre: comedy, drama, and, or uh, horror or action. Like favorite movie for each of those dra- uh, genres. Stump me with all these non-powerlifting questions. I know. I want to get to know you as a person. I know it's weird. Remind, remind me of the, what are the genres you're asking about? Uh, comedy, drama, and then horror or action, thriller. Like you know, this the the other the other ones. Um, comedy. I'm gonna have to say. Um, I really liked uh, This is the End. Ooh, that's a ooh, good choice. All right, all right. Dig it. Um, or I guess, uh, I mean, I guess I consider Wolf of Wall Street a comedy, right? I think that's fair. It's a satire for sure. And it's, yeah, it, it's, I'll, I'll yeah. I'll put Wolf of Wall Street in that, in that basket. Yeah, um, yeah. Drama, I'm going to have to go with The Departed. That's ooh. my favorite of all time. You East Coast, um, East Coast boy, I see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, horror or thriller? Um, Shutter Island is one of my favorites. Good choice. I can I get behind um, that. Bronson? Fuck yeah, I've seen Bronson. Tom Hardy, Nicholas Winding Refn, one of the best like, like it's um, artsy noir film since Clockwork Orange in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I've fucking seen it. <laughs> I'm, gonna, yeah, just, I'm gonna have to put that into one of my favorite movies as well. 
Tom Hardy's unbelievable. I, 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 I love you more now that you said that because it's one of my favorite movies also for sure. Um, artistically, <laughs> cinematically, um, the writing was really dope. That character, obviously, he's really cool. Um, really interesting. I, I, I read more about him. And um, the soundtrack was dope. Um, that thing, that thing, honestly, was it, it reminded me of Clockwork Orange, just like a, a noir, a newer noir Clockwork Orange in a way. And it's crazy because it's like you know a base off that guy's life. So yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that answer. Uh, if no one's seen that, they should. Because yeah, Tom Hardy is amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah, Unbelievable yeah. Actor. Uh, all the time. I. Uh, I this you know people he's done so much and people get to know him now but I I started watching him back in um, his rock and roller days uh, under Guy Ritchie and um, also he did what did he do he did a show when he was younger I forget what it was called I want to say maybe Skins maybe it wasn't I think that was maybe Charlie Hunnam but it but he he was good he, he's always been good he's been awesome um uh, okay uh, piloting question. Uh, any tips on making your hook grip bulletproof at the heavier weights? Yeah, uh, two. The first is that most people hook grip incorrectly. Uh, they try to squeeze the bar really hard, and they try to dig it into their hands. So one thing that I've seen a lot of people teach, uh, or not a lot of people, but I've seen some authorities teach to try to use as many fingers with your hook grip. Like I see people will teach, like, you know, get your, you know, your, your index finger, middle, and ring finger all involved. Um, and obviously you're going to be holding the bar with all your fingers just by consequence of having hands. But when you're setting your hook grip, you should really just be focusing on uh, the thumb and the middle finger. And the other two, the other three fingers will kind of come along for the ride. Um, and then people set the bar too high. Like they really try to dig it into the webbing of their thumb and squeeze super hard. Um, and that the reason you miss grip, okay. So if we're if we're talking about this from a, a physics standpoint, and I feel the need to get into this because no. I think it's important. I think it's an important thing to talk about. Right. This this is you the place. You are not inherently stronger. Like your 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 crushing grip strength is not stronger when you turn a hand underhand. Right. The reason you're stronger mixed versus double overhand is that. The bar cannot roll in any one specific direction. It's not going to have a higher propensity to roll in a specific direction, right? Because if you're holding a bar overhand, right, it's going to want to roll out this way out of your hand. But if you're holding it in opposing grips, right, the bar wants to roll out of one hand one way and roll out of one hand the other way. So instead of all of the rotational momentum that the bar gains just going in one direction, you now have this offset of like, okay, I might lose grip. You know, but I only have, you know, the difference between the two angular momentums I get on each contact point of the bar. So now how that carries into hook grip is that the reason you miss a deadlift is not just because your crushing grip strength isn't that strong. But once the bar starts to roll, it's going to open up your hand. So when you pull hook, you want to have the bar sitting at the lowest point or at this contact point between the middle finger and the thumb. So you don't want to dig it in super deep into your thumb and just wrap the fingers over and squeeze because it's going to start rolling the same way it does double overhand and tear the skin off of your thumb. What you want to do is you want to grab it more loosely, so let the bar hang a little lower in the hand. Try to get the middle finger around the thumb as well as you can, but let the bar 
kind of sit on that junction, right? Because now it's sitting at this stable valley, right, where it's only going straight down. The bar can't roll from that point. And if it, if it has any rolling you know, momentum, it's very mock, right? But you can agree that you're going to have a lot less, you know, you're going to be less vulnerable to the bar rolling if it's kind of sitting at the bottom right at the junction rather than sitting higher up where it has this opportunity to fall lower in the hand. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, When I kind of figured out how to do that for my hook, I thought of it as pulling the slack out of my hand. Um, that's how I That's how I thought about that. What, what you had said. So I think that's a much better explanation but <laughs> but yes um i like it all right next question is favorite sports teams um new york yankees grew up in new york baseball is my favorite sport been a diehard yankee fan whole life um they're kicking ass this year um shout out to all the people who think they just buy their players because their whole team is fucking new um favorite football team new england patriots um, the reason I'm a Patriots fan is I, I, you know, I grew up my whole life watching football, but never played, um, never really developed any sort of loyalty to a team, just kind of appreciated the sport for what it is athletically. Um, but once I moved to Cambridge, uh, you know, in, in Massachusetts, um, I just got way more into, you know kind of the, the Patriot fan culture there. Um, and I've always been a Tom Brady and Bill Belichick fan. They're fucking monsters. Um, basketball, I don't really care. Um, I'm kind of a fan of players, but I just don't follow the sport that closely. Um, soccer, again, don't don't really follow soccer. I'm actually Colombian. I'm a massive soccer fan. Um, but the fact that they may, they've made it to the World Cup is, is huge for dad. But I personally do not really find soccer that interesting to watch. Um, what other sports? Honestly, I'm really only like a, you know, if we're really saying a fan, I'm really only a fan of baseball and football. That's fair. That's fair. How about hockey? No hockey? I'm a big hockey fan. So I, I enjoy, I actually really enjoy watching hockey. And it's something that I've, I've watched more of in recent years. But Growing up, I didn't watch hockey because neither of my parents were hockey fans. That's fair. Yeah, I that's um that's one of my favorite one of my favorite sports. I'm a big hockey fan and boxing, hockey, boxing, and rugby. Oddly enough, those are those are my three I, favorite so sports. I actually, I watched a lot of boxing growing up, but the sport is kind of dead, which it, is upsetting. It is, and it's upsetting. It hasn't been really, really good since the uh, Super Six tournament, which was a, a good eight years, six years back, something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sadly, you're right, but. Um, I still love the sport. Uh, yeah, yeah, my uncle was actually a professional boxer. Not a very good one, but I grew up watching. Hey, man, that's, that, that's impressive. If you were a professional boxer of any capacity, especially on the East Coast and the – you know, in the uh, um, you know the late the mid to later nineties, you were a uh, coffin nail of a person. So, uh, any respect to anybody who did that. He was one of the undercards for uh, I forget which Tyson fight, but he was one of the undercards for a Tyson fight. That's so still that's still fucking rad. That's that's rad to me, dude. I, yeah. I think so. Um, yeah, one of my my great uncle, who was my grandmother's brother, uh, fought um, fought Joe Lewis in his younger days. Oh shit! Yeah, that's fucking that was so fucking rad. That was one of those things where I learned that and I 
I, I knew that. I only found that out maybe five five years ago, and I was, so I was already a fan. And I just I, I was like, how, how did this take you this long to tell me, Grandma? Like, WT fuck? I don't, you know. But that was really cool. Um. Anyway, uh, next question: Your nerdiest quirk. Nerdiest quirk. Um. I don't know. I feel like I don't have a good answer to this. Um, actually, you know, maybe I do. Because, like, in the typical, you know, tech sense of being a nerd, like, I'm not into video games. I don't really like building stuff. Like, a lot of, like, the engineering types of things, I'm not, you know, definitely, like I said, not the stereotypical MIT student. Um, but I absolutely love snakes and sharks. Like, I know a fuck ton about snakes and sharks. And, like, growing up, um, like, when I was a little kid, I would, like, read all the books. I Steve Irwin was, like, my idol growing up. I wanted to be a zoologist. Where, um, so, yeah, I, I love snakes. That's, that's snakes awesome. So I'm actually, I'm really considering at some point uh, over the next couple of years getting a... Uh, getting venomous uh, reptile license dude that would be so awesome i will i will fly over just to see that oh that'd be so my, my, my mom is like having a heart attack when I say that. yeah probably uh, but that's you know but it's yeah. still awesome like uh yeah. it's, it's fascinating I, I tell people that all the time like being nerdy doesn't always just mean you know fucking world of warcraft and you know and comic books you could be a music nerd uh, rep animal nerd you could be you know sports nerd especially baseball i feel like baseball nerds are the highest of the sports nerds because of all the stats that that they track yeah and percentages and like which is i mean it's impressive uh to say the least um so yeah uh i think that would be rad what would be first venomous snake that you would buy if you had your license what would be your first one it actually depends because even you know there are some states like that you can't even have venomous snakes in, so it kind of it's state law determines that. Yeah. Also, well, well bar, barring that, barring like if just your choice. If I had one choice for a venomous snake. Um, for your first venomous snake, your first venomous snake that you could have, barring any type of law or whatever, just like you, your first one. Probably a uh, a death adder. Ooh. <laughs> one, of, one, of the, yeah, one of the most venomous snakes uh, in the world. They're not that big. Um, they're kind of stumpy little looking snakes. Um, but I definitely would want to have, you know, I would definitely want to have one of those, you know, a lot more exotic kind of snakes. Ooh. Because, you know, in the U.S., like everybody knows about cobras. There's a, you know, every cobras are widespread throughout the world in Africa, in Asia. Um, everybody knows about rattlesnakes, whatever. Um, I also wouldn't want a snake that I think is more, uh, more quick to bite. Like I definitely wouldn't want a, uh, you know, a black mamba to start off with or yeah. a spitting cobra or one of those more, uh, you know, aggressive, unpredictable kind of yeah. snakes. Yeah, no, that's, I, I like that. That's a good answer. I just, uh, I imagine what it would be like, you get that, like what it's, what it would be like for you you know, say talk. You know, talking to 
someone that you're interested in. Be like, hi, my name is Sean Noriega. I'm an elite level powerlifter. I went to MIT. Would you like to come and have a drink at my house and see my black adder snake? <laughs> just... Yeah, it'd be, it'd be like telling Danielle. It's like, yeah, babe, uh, I'm just going to be against out. Yeah, exactly. Let's yeah, it's gonna be a, po- yeah, a poison snake. It may get out. Come stay the night at your own risk. It's an adventure every morning. Like, yeah. <laughs> are you will dead? Will you will you wake up? Um, you know what what snake what snake is touching you? We don't know. We'll find out together. Uh, <laughs> so there's that. It's fantastic. Um, I like it. I, I think that's like, that's a really cool quirk, actually. I I like you even more now just because you like snakes and sharks and you're nerdy about it. Just because that's cool. I think again, it goes back to you know knowing yourself. Now, I think many people, if they they're interested in something and they maybe it would probably you know bring a lot of joy to their life, but because it's either weird or they just don't know how to go about it, they don't explore it. And it's kind of sad. Yeah. Um. All right. So last question, number ten. Uh, for these is what inspires you as an athlete and what inspires you uh, creatively as a create, like a, as an artist and as a creative person? Um, well, I'll answer the first part of that because I think it's an easier one. Um, as a coach, I'm very, I'm definitely have a more uh, romantic response for how I'm inspired as a coach because I just, it brings a lot of joy to me to to help lifters, you know, achieve their, um, you know, their final form. To kind of lifting for a lot of people, is, you know, is more than just you know lifting weights and getting in shape. Having this tangible way of progressing and growing means a lot to a lot of people for a ton of different reasons. And and helping people get to that point of doing things that they once never thought that they could um, and just seeing how much enjoyment and gratitude they get from that um, means a lot to me so from a coaching aspect that's kind of what inspires me and that's why I'm you know I, like I've I think I was telling you know a couple of my friends in a group chat of mine like I got 30 inquiries over the weekend now could I make another 40 grand this year and take them all on yes would I do that absolutely not because my investment in them the quality of coaching yeah, it would go down. Yeah, it's it would go. Yeah, it would be totally not manageable. I would just be doing that for the money, right? So, being able to kind of uphold this quality and really develop these relationships with my lifters matters a lot to me. Um, the reason I said that answer is more romantic is because my answer as a lifter is definitely more superficial. Um, because I grew up a very competitive athlete in baseball, and I just wanted to be the best and I wanted to win. And that's kind of the same boat that I'm in with lifting. Like I, I don't, and I've said this to people before. Like I don't, I'm not in this for like the long game. Like I don't care if I'm still lifting at 40. I honestly would rather just like dominate for a little bit, and then like you know, hopefully by that point, my you know, I'll have some prospects and acting, and I can just leave powerlifting behind, coach the people that I want to coach, and like not have to worry about my numbers. Like I, I literally just want to win. I want to be the best and. That's kind of the the internal motivation to keep lifting. I don't think there's nothing non-romantic. I mean, simple, but I don't think there's nothing non-romantic about that at all. I think there is something wonderful about being the best. And I think people are too afraid to say that these days. Like, I want to be good. Like, I, I want to compete. I want to be competitive because everyone wants a 
you know, a fucking uh, participation trophy. Uh, everyone, you know, uh, you said it in Angela's show, and it, and I, I completely agree with you, and it stuck with me that sometimes to be the best isn't always going to be healthy or holistic. You're going to have, you will have to sacrifice and be imbalanced for a short period of time to reach a certain level for you, you know, because to to get there, because if you want great results. Um, you need a great sacrifice. Yeah. There no, you know, nothing great ever happened from a mediocre input. So yeah, I mean, you can't you can't be balanced and elite. It just doesn't work. Um, no, and, I, and I, the people close to me know. Like I, I throw everything in the furnace. Like I, I fuel that fire obsessively. Um, I guess what people would consider unhealthily. Um, one, I just go on a little tangent about that because there are habits that you can that one person can have that can lead to unhealthy thoughts and unhealthy patterns in one person and the other person could be totally fine. So I think that this this notion that, you know, balance is the only way to be healthy and if you're obsessive you're not. Um, it's really just kind of it's dependent on the individual's um, interpretation of that information, right? Like yeah. to me like I haven't drank alcohol since high school. Like, I will obsessively put everything into my training. I'll obsessively count. And, you know, I was like, all this stuff that's with little people want to come up, you know. People ask to drink and hang out. I won't do it. Like, there are plenty of people who, if they do that, they will feel like they're missing out. They will feel unfulfilled. They'll feel like they're, you know, dumping all of their energy into this thing that they're ultimately foregoing things that make them happy. Um, but for me, it's just like I just have this very, I guess, kind of one-track mind where when I'm fixated on something, like, I'm fixated on it. And if if I have to sacrifice a lot of things for it, I don't. it doesn't hurt me to do that. Yeah, and I think that comes from if you were brought, put into sports early, like I was, and, you know, and obviously, you know, you were, you understand the satisfaction of getting that payoff in the long game. I think most people don't actually know what that's like, so they don't have a reference for it. So the only, so therefore they can't, they don't see the benefit of foregoing, um, you know, and staying and, and sacrificing. And they're like, you know, they're like, well, you know, I don't know. You may not, you may not get another chance. You're like, no, nah, man. There's always going to be another night at the bar. There's only one time. I there may be a very short window that I can reach the, you know this glory or this goal or build this you know whatever that i'm trying to build like that's a short window there's always a there'll be another always another you know bullshit night and, you know yeah it, it's never the it's not the same so i like i like that um and what about you creatively as an artist this yeah this is another uh this is why i left this one for last um I have, I don't know what it is, I, I have very emotional responses to art and movies. Like, movies that become my favorite um, are not just for, like, oh, like, you know, that superhero, like, you know, like, there are people who are the typical moviegoers who like seeing things blow up and heads get popped off, and they have these, like, very, you know, surface-level, um, this very surface-level enjoyment or satisfaction that they get from movies, but... Um, for me, it's just like my entire life, like the movies that I consider like really good, just like reach me in a very deep and way and like, I guess, drive me to, you know, pursue more and be, you know, the best that I can be. And just like the 
way that the way that I, I guess could describe like how I how I view you know the prospects of, of becoming an actor or like acting I've done in the past and the satisfaction has brought me is like at the surface level I really love entertaining people I love making people laugh I love making people feel things um, for me it's just like I've derived so much not just satisfaction but almost like I guess like transformative emotional responses from like really great productions or performances and it's something that I want to be able to do for other people because I know it might sound silly to some people but like there are movies and movie characters that like really inspire people in their everyday life and I've definitely had that experience with movies and movie characters and I think that I'm trying to remember oh you know it from one of my favorite movies, Dead Poets Society, where Robin Williams is talking about how, you know, science and doctors and all these things are necessary to sustain life. But, you know, poetry, art, love, like all those things are the things that we live for. I think that without deriving that inspiration, the motivation, the emotional, you know, being touched by these performances, like people would go insane. I think that we need that as humans. We need to have that that catharsis, that that emotional um, reaction from things, and it's something that I get from from watching movies and watching actors, and it's something that I want to be able to do, you know, for other people. Uh, I think that that's a great answer, man, and I agree because I'm I'm the same way. I love stories. I love characters and impact, and I draw parallels, and I'm empathetic to them. And so it's like movies, shows, books, it's like those characters teach me like about myself, about life. They make me realize lessons or cliches that, yeah, you hear in real life, but then it's portrayed to you in such a way through a performance that it clicks, you know, you, yeah. you relate to them. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a trend. It's like um, an internal alchemy and it's a transformative experience and um, it's like uh, in one of my favorite movies, V for Vendetta, um, yeah. you know, he That's says a it's, a, yeah, it's amazing. Um, you know, he says artists use lies to tell the truth. And and I, and I think it's so true. Maybe not, you know, lies, lies being the um, the story obviously is made up or the whatever the character is. That's a that's a farce. But the emotion and the mindset and the lesson, the underlying theme, the underlying theme and the metamorphosis of that character is real and you and it's like that's that's a it's a a template like so you can like oh i i can do that i can be you know rocky i can stand up for justice like v i can i can learn you know all all of that like all of that just teaches you there's so much truth built into stories that's why we made stories you know uh in the historical sense uh, you know the those stories to teach lessons to people and passed down like, you know, through, uh, auditory in, um, you know, speech before things were written down. Like that's, like you said, been a part of our emotional catharsis as a race. And I think, um, people take it for granted and, or maybe it's just not something for them, but I agree with you. Like that's, you know, it's like, I, no matter, no matter how big I know, how old I get, I'm still going to, I want to impact people, inspire people the way, you know, my favorite, you know, cartoon characters, superheroes did. And uh, I still, I still, you know, watch, you know, Rocky when I, when I need to, you know, and yep. uh, I always will. And I think that's a, a strength uh, above all, uh, because 
you're in touch with yourself and um yeah man visceral reactions to art are what make life you know really just um a beautiful thing to live yeah so a hundred percent with that uh, I was actually sorry. To, no, I was done. I just, want, I just want to keep going on this. On this is a good conversation. Um, you know, I was talking to you know one of my I consider one of my biggest mentors, role models, people who have helped me throughout my life. Um, Elish Lee uh, earlier today. For those of you guys who don't know, his uh, Instagram is. Oh, let me check. Maybe he changed his name recently. I just want to make sure he didn't. Um, okay, it's at Intuitive Strength. Um, He's as a you know as a career he's he's transformed a lot going from strictly to strength sport to a lot more uh, personal development and you know he's he's, he's shifted from strict sport lifting to movement to personal you know mindfulness and awareness coaching stuff like that um, but I was having a conversation with him today about um, one of the posts I made I don't know if you saw the kids um, physical transformation. Uh, but it's clear that he's just been taking, you know, a lot of drugs, a lot of anabolics um, that have manifested manifested themselves in some pretty severe physical ways, yeah. um, like scarring, scarring acne in a really bad way. Um, and the reason I was talking to him about it, I was just like, you know, as a coach, it's so irresponsible of you to take a kid who clearly didn't know any better, um, was nowhere near his genetic potential in terms of training. Um, and just putting him on a ton of drugs in order to progress him um, in a way that completely had foregone his physical well-being. And it's your job as someone, if you're selling your services, not just, you know, if you're a coach, you're not just selling the ability to gain muscle. Like, you are you are being the, the navigator of someone's health. Um, and if you're completely ignoring that aspect of it, it's, it's you're irresponsible. Um, and while he agreed, one thing he said is, you know, it's really easy on social media to try to combat all of the negative. Like we see a lot more bad than good. Um, and we feel that the fight that we need to fight is to make all of the bad go away. But really the biggest impact that we can have is just staying true to the message and the changes and impact we want to have on our people and just spread that, um, you know, you hear the cliche all the time of like, you know, spread positivity, blah, blah, blah. But, it, you know, it really is. It is true at its core that like there's going to be so much bad and irresponsibility and negligence and ignorance. And while you can, you know, maybe squash a few of those people and, and try to bring light to that, um, ultimately you make your biggest impact by like, you know, knowing the message and the impact you have and just making sure that you do your job to continue to impact people in that in those positive ways oh absolutely i think you touched on um you know a really important you know point there that you're you know that your friend brought up that that it's not about extinguishing the negative it's about making the positive thrive and you know into you know even a very Taoist concept and like i i love Taoism and in, in terms of like nerdism and like nerdy things i really nerd out on that shit i have a tattoo of the Tao of poo on my arm and which is an awesome book That's so funny. yeah I, yeah I, I do it's one of my favorite books and i got it tattooed because i fucking wanted to um and you know it's a very Taoist con the idea that you cannot it's it's actually irresponsible to try to extinguish bad or negative you 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 cannot you need that for any type of positiveness to thrive 
And that, you know, kind of going to, you know, a different type of balance than what we were talking about earlier, like you, those two things need to be in opposition. And, and those two things are always going to be keeping each other going, like they fuel each other. So it's so, you know, if you're worried about all the negative shit that you see, don't try to stamp it out. Just be more fucking positive, like be strong, be bigger than the shit that upsets you, you know, you know, it's a, and that is the only you know thing. Of course, the other effect is that the negative will also get bigger. But then that just helps. And you step up. It's like a competition. Like, who you know, you're always doing that. It's like, uh, in, you know, in. The Dark Knight Rises, you know, they say, you know, Batman brought the Joker onto us because he, you know, he stepped up. He leveled up from just petty crimes and stuff. He put on a mask and he and you created that. And it's true. But at the same time, that's, you know, that's uh, I mean, that's just part of life. Like that's part of the evolution. Everything must evolve. And the equal opposite also must evolve to have you evolve again or you will just become stagnant and die. So if you, know, if you if you don't if you want the negative out, be the bigger positive. So I, I think your friend touched on a really uh, a really really valid point there. And I if I think I already follow him, and if I don't, I definitely will because that's awesome. So no, he's, dude, he's the man. Yeah, a hundred percent. I will I will have to check into that because I I already like him, and so. Um, well, it's been, uh, two hours and five minutes and, uh, 28 seconds that I've kept you awake and Beautiful. I, I love it. Oh, dude, you're not, you're not keeping me awake, man. I don't go to bed for another four hours at least. Okay. All right. Well, I don't feel as bad then. Um, but, <laughs> but honestly, man, this is actually my, my longest show to date and probably the most wide varied and, uh, definitely right up there with one of the most informative and you were everything that I wanted out of the guest, and um, you're and you're even more of a cooler person than I expected. And I really uh, I appreciate you for that. And uh, it was a blast. Thank you for the kind words. Hey man, it's it's uh, it's honest truth, and you're welcome back on my my random ass show anytime. Uh, I would you know um, you know I love to hear more. Uh, as your acting gets going, I'd love to hear more about that also. So keep me in the loop. And um, I'm really looking forward to you uh, on the platform again. Uh, I'm Nats. very excited. I, I think it looks like you're building up something really good. You know, that one point in the movie where all the foreshadowing starts to kind of come to a head. And you're like, oh boy, this is where, you know, Bruce Banner says, I'm always angry. I feel like that's coming up for you, knock on wood. And um, I'm really excited to see it. So, um, so yeah, so I, I hope um, people really take away from this because I know I have and I did. And uh, yeah, man, that's, that, that's, that's what I got. I really appreciate you. No problem, and I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Yes. Um, if uh, there's anyone you want to shout out or anything you would like to say, please do so. Yo, shout out Russ. Russ. I'm ready for you, man. Oh, he's coming. Three days. He, oh, oh, I'm, I'm excited for you to go head-to-head. I want to get him on the show sometime. Yeah. It's it's true. It, it, you can tell him. Be like, hey man, I said you can fast forward to the end, you know. Um, but I, I'm excited. He, I'm excited to see you two go go at it and. Nah, it's gonna yeah. be fun. 
Hell yeah. It, it'll be fun. And, and yeah, I'm excited to see all your stuff, man. So you, keep doing your thing. And I really hope to talk to you again soon. For sure, man. Awesome. All right, buddy. Have well, I'll let you go. Day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right, sports fans, there he is, hamstring poppy, number one in our hearts, Mr. Sean Noriega. Thank you so much, Sean, for coming on. Uh, I do apologize for all of the (laughs) technical difficulties that we experienced. Got cut out like three times, and the connection being wonky. He's in New York, I'm in California. But, man, he a great guy with a great big brain and a great big heart. So, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, folks. And I really hope you get something to take away from that because, you know, goddamn, a lot of good information there. So thank you, guys. Thank you, uh, Viking Performance Chalk, for the very first round of the Viking Performance Inquisition and collecting those questions, which I thought was great for Sean. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing more. So shout out to you guys. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, Thank you, everyone who supports the show. And thank you for everybody who just... You know, y'all just looking to make yourself better, make the world a better place. So, till next time, I'm your host, Nicholas. This is the Nerds Who Live Podcast. Yeah.